Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Delbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends Giselle Donnelly, also a senior fellow at the AI. And Yulia Zhoja with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have emerged along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Benjamin Wittes, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and the Editor-in-Chief of Lawfare. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Ben, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. We could conceivably have you talk about you know, any number of subjects uh, ranging from administrative law to, to your work on, on, on the Trump presidency. Uh, but we invited you expressly to talk about um, the little screening you, have, you helped organize uh, on the 18th Street in Washington on Saturday. It was a screening of Agnieszka Holland's excellent film on the Holodomor, Mr. Jones. And uh, it's a screening that uh, took place in front of the press building of the of the Russian embassy. This was not the first time that you've sought to attract attention to the plight of, 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 of Ukrainians facing the Russian invasion. Um, I wonder if you could tell us, to, for, for, first of all, you know how the, how the evening went, and uh, how it sort of fits into your, you know, broader effort to to keep keep the um, the attention on on Ukraine as as a certain Ukraine fatigue seems to be setting in in Washington. And if I may, it it would be good to to describe for our listeners the film and the Holodomor itself just to be sure everybody's on the same sheet of music. Right. So the, um, the operation was an attempt to uh, play the film Mr. Jones, which I will describe momentarily, on, on the wall of the Russian Embassy Press Building, which is uh, separate from the rest of the Russian Embassy compound. It's down on 18th Street. Uh, and uh, the film, which was uh, written by Andrea Chalupa and uh, directed by Agnesia Holland, uh, is a uh, is the story. It's fictionalized, but it's it's uh, quite accurate as a general matter. And it's a, the story of the Welsh journalist Gareth Jones, who uh, exposed uh, Stalin's forced famine uh, in Ukraine in nineteen. 19- early 1930s. And um, this was uh, the subject of a massive and largely successful cover-up by the Soviet government, which was uh, uh, manipulating the international press, particularly the New York Times through its uh, uh, Moscow correspondent, Walter Durante. And uh, Gareth Jones uh, actually traveled to Ukraine and uh, uh, witnessed uh, this uh, massive famine that was, you know, human-imposed. It was an intentional famine that killed um, some indeterminate number of millions of people. Um, uh, he was later murdered uh, under under the sort of mysterious circumstances that enemies of Stalin uh, tended to disappear. And um, I I thought it would be, uh, so the movie was released just before 
the uh, uh, the pandemic, and it 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 uh, got a lot of uh, critical acclaim, but was not seen by that many people. And I thought, uh, given the Russian current activities in Ukraine, uh, a really fine film by a, a, you know, one of the great filmmakers of our generation about this topic would be a great way to uh, attract attention to ongoing Russian genocidal activity in Ukraine. And uh, also would be uh, a, a, an interesting way of shedding light on uh, ongoing disinformation operations uh, emanating from Moscow because, of course, the uh, suppression of uh, the uh, story of the Holodomor at the time was itself a, a massive disinformation operation using the Western press. So how did it go? Well, as with all of these uh, uh, little demonstrations that I've done, and this has fits is part of a, a string of them, uh, the Russians have res responded very aggressively. And you know, one of the one of the reasons that I do these is to provoke the Russian response to force them to behave in Washington in a, a tenth of the way, a hundredth of the way that they behave in theater. Uh, you know, they're not going to murder people or destroy buildings in Washington, but just to get them to show a little bit of the thuggery. Um, so what they did on Saturday night is they uh, drove up with uh, the first van contained uh, four people all in masks, maybe three, um, who were carrying uh, uh, bulletproof vests and uh, fire extinguishers. And they very theatrically got out of the van and went into the building. Um, the second van parked immediately in front of the projector, which the projector we were using is a 400 pound uh, high power projector, which we use because we were afraid of their own lights on the building. And we were uh, trying to use a piece of equipment that would be heavy duty enough that they wouldn't be able to obliterate it with spotlights. Uh, but that, of course, makes it less than entirely mobile. And so they uh, parked the van in front of the, the projector and then proceeded to light up their entire building with every internal light um, that there was, which included, uh, by the way, they put big Z lights in each of the top uh, two windows. Right. Uh, so imagine, you know, sort of, uh, a building lit up with swastikas, basically, was uh, 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 what they did. It made it impossible to project onto, even if the van hadn't been there. So uh, we scrambled and we brought in a uh, very large television um, and we screened it on a television in front of it until we ran afoul at 10 o'clock p.m. of the D.C. City Noise Ordinance, at which point the Secret Service asked us to uh, <laughs> desist, which we did. So all in all, I, I mean, I think we, we had a, and we live streamed the whole thing. So we had a, 
wonderful conversation with Agnieszka Holland and, and Andrea Chalupa uh, and uh, Olga Lautman uh, while this was all going on, which is now uh, I, I edited last night and posted on YouTube. Um, but it's part of this sort of larger cat and mouse where with, with the Russian embassy staff where, you know, we try to uh, make a statement. They try to prevent us from making the statement. We try to do it uh, nonviolently but confrontationally and try to el elicit from them the... Uh, uh, some trace of the violence with which they're responding uh, in general. And so in that sense, of course, I suppose it was a great success. It probably was not the, the, the ideal conditions under which to watch a serious movie. <laughs> that, sounds, uh, that sounds like I'm really sorry I missed that. I'm out of D.C. But one thing that I want to say... Um, and I would recommend this to our listeners who live in D.C. or in the D.C. area, is over the course of the last few months in the spring semester, more, more specifically, my path home around 9 p.m. every week, um, driving from my Georgetown class back home, was by the Russian embassy. And so I could see your work and the cat and mouse every time and it honestly made my day so i definitely recommend it to people who um, live in the area and it's so important also kind of driving a parallel i was struck when you started talking earlier answering dalibor's question about the framing um, that you did to the whole spectacle from from saturday night because um, because the parallels and maybe you did this on purpose the parallels from in, between what is happening now and what was happening at the time that the movie reflects the Holodomor period and how the Russians go about Stalin then Putin now with the same kinds of methods um, the same kind of creating chaos and confusion through intimidation, disinformation, killing of dissidents and opposers and, and everything is, um, the parallels are really striking. Um, and in that vein, I want to ask you something um, based on something that you said earlier, the parallels between genocide then and the genocidal actions. I think that was your wording now. Um, we've had over the last months um, in the United States and I guess in the Western uh, world, endless conversations about how this war is going. Some people are saying it's going well. Some people are saying it's going bad. I guess that's part of um, the disinformation campaign and what the character of it is. Is it terrorist acts? Is it genocide? Is it World War III? Um, and so based on what you said with the genocidal actions, can you tell us a little bit more about your views, also looking in parallel to history about 80, 90 years ago, is what we're looking at right now a genocide in the true sense? I think it's very hard to look at what's happening now and not see a genocide in the true sense, or at least an attempted genocide. Of, I, I mean, I, you know, there aren't that many completed genocides, right? So I think the the relevant question, at least to me, is not whether 
it's a successful genocide, which I don't expect it to be, but whether the objective and the actions are genocidal in character. So here you have a, a, a military operation whose express purpose is to eliminate Ukrainian nationhood, right? The premise of it is the denial of the existence of the country. It has leveled cities. It has involved massive deportations of people for purposes of erasing their identity. And, you know, the the Russian media is quite overt and uh, naked about the fact that they aspire to resettle uh, large numbers of children with Russian families for purposes of re-education. Um, they have uh, dis- they have targeted cultural and uh, uh, and uh, you know cultural important cultural objects important um, uh, and so I, I think when you put it together oh and then you know the 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 massive uh, killing of civilians in occupied areas and sexual violence directed against people in in occupied areas I I just don't see how how it makes sense to see it in a context other than uh, than at least attempted genocide in very much the same way that uh, I think that was the right way to understand certain activity in 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 Bosnia a, a number of years ago. Uh, similarly, um, it's not to say that genocide is the right lens through which to view every activity that's taken place. Some of these are just very traditional war crimes um, and, you know, are better understood as discrete war crimes that may be very local in character or may be uh, ordered from the top. And you kind of need an investigation in order to determine that. But I think when you look at the aggregate pattern, uh, one one question to ask, I think, is if you don't think it's a genocide, uh, what would have to be different in order for it to be one? And I, and I think when you frame the question that way, it, it comes into a pretty clear focus. I would also note that there's another interesting parallel with the Holodomor period, which was, of course, chiefly effectuated by, by intentional famine. And here, uh, there is also an intentional famine that is in the works. It's just not directed at Ukrainians. It's, it's using the effort to starve Ukrainians of cash by stealing or tying up um, uh, uh, large amounts of Ukrainian grain um, in order to provoke hunger and excessive food prices elsewhere in the world. And so I think, you know, there's a real risk at this point that this war produces some measure of significant hunger or starvation in in Africa. Um, That, you know, that use of grain as a weapon is a is a real creepy parallel to uh, what is happening you know what happened 90 years ago if, 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 if since we are on historical parallels i i have to ask this uh you know mr jones is partly a story about uh, a failure of you know one key american institution namely the new york times 
to to really process accurately what was happening in the Soviet Union at the time, you know, through the figure of Walter Duranty, who was at the time serving essentially the Soviet line to to Western audiences. Uh, it strikes me that we are observing a similar failure of of, of certain Western institutions in in sort of you know, covering accurately what is happening in Ukraine right now. Uh, last week, Amnesty International produced a report which has made, obviously, a, a massive splash uh, in, 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 in the Western world because it, it created a sort of false moral equivalence between, between uh, Russian war crimes and the fact that, you know, Ukrainians have to place their troops and uh, defense equipment in in heavily populated areas in order to be able to defend those areas and uh, and it looks like it looks to me that they, you know not unlike 90 years ago we, we still don't have a very good handle on how to deal with a sort of deceitful bad faith actor that is Vladimir Putin's Russia and and and, and, and you know the predictable circles have sort of seized on this report to you know, flag supposed Ukrainian war crimes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, is is this the? Would you share this impression? Is there is there anything we can sort of learn from history, uh, and and from you know the era of the Holodomor to to just be able to sort of deal with Russian disinformation better, more effectively, and to sort of prevent uh, the, the the sort of hiccups we observed last week with the amnesty report. It's a fascinating question. So I would say, first of all, uh, with respect to the amnesty report, uh, which is disgraceful, uh, in particular, uh, you know, the politicization of human rights groups and their reporting is a longstanding problem. And this is uh, far from the first uh, uh, amnesty report, including this year, that is a, 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 a terrible uh, abuse of the the concept of human rights in order to uh, uh, score political points. Um, I will say I think the uh, on this matter we've made some progress because um, you know the the necessity. First of all, Amnesty reported that um, issued that report and was immediately the subject to worldwide criticism. Uh, correctly. Uh, it uh, provoked something of a scandal. The major damage has been done to amnesty, not to, not to Ukraine. Um, and, you know, back 90 years ago, when Walter Durante was uh, reporting uh, from Russia that there was no famine in Ukraine, um, there was nobody, it, it took somebody, uh, in, in this case, Gareth Jones, to physically go there to uh, put his life on the line, um, uh, and he was ultimately murdered, um, uh, in order to go there and correct things. And there was not the kind of information environment in which anybody was in an immediate position to real-time check the New York Times. And so to co-opt the New York Times, as Stalin was able to do, uh, actually really affected Western understanding of the Soviet Union. It really affected uh, 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 
policy making. It really affected all kinds of things. And today, uh, you know, for all the flaws that uh, our current information ecosystem has, Amnesty puts out a report like that, and it is immediately, you know, debunked by a hundred people. And so I, I actually think the parallels are real in that the corruption of of inst- Western institutions by the Russians are is an ongoing problem. But I, I do think we have better defenses today than we did uh, 90 years ago, thanks to the proliferation of voices and the proliferation of, of information sources. But by the same token, um, the amnesty report is kind of an example of how chaotic the information spaces, I hate to use that, that word, the, the, I mean, whether or not the report has you know, direct Russian fingerprints on it or not, there is this constant stream of propaganda, not, not only from organizations like Amnesty, not only from the Russian government, but a whole host of you know, sources in the West that make it easy for us to not look at the moral dimension of this conflict. Um, I don't know exactly why that is, but it means that, that it's hard to reach a political consensus that is durable and is up to the task of uh, helping the Ukrainians defend themselves and reassert their sovereignty and so on and so forth. It's like we're playing defense all the time, putting out these fires that that may be easily extinguished and temporary, but are numerous um, and have, you know, achieved some purpose um, across the political extremes, at least in this country, which are increasingly becoming, uh, moving toward the mainstream in terms of the way they dominate our politics. I know this is kind of a, a long semi-question, but since so much of your work has been an attempt to, to keep the focus on the moral dimension of the Ukraine war, what do you think about what I had to say? And how's it going? Um, do you feel like you're achieving um, a success in the campaign? Uh, or is it sort of that putting out of fires uh, on a regular basis, or two steps forward, one step back. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I certainly look. It certainly would be helpful if Amnesty would, instead of uh, trying to criminalize defensive urban warfare, um, uh, would you know focus on the murder of POWs by the Russians or the uh, systematic uh, destruction of Mariupol, um, uh, right? I mean, and similarly- Is that too much to ask? I mean, really? <laughs> I, I would, you know, I would think that when, when uh, like, that wouldn't be too hard. But, um, uh, but that said, um, look, I think the bigger threat is the second one you mentioned, which is- uh, just a kind of Ukraine exhaustion. Uh, you know, we've had, we have a heck of a summer going on here domestically, right? The Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. 
we have uh, midterm elections coming up. We have a lot of legislative action. We've got the one six committee investigation. We've got the one six criminal investigation. I mean, there's a lot for Americans to focus on right here. And Ukraine is far away. And by the way, the this is going to sound really lizard like bloodless to say, but a long front artillery war where the sides don't move not very good television. much is really, it's really less exciting than repulsing a giant column headed toward mm-hmm. Kiev with uh, javelins. And uh, I mean, the first few weeks of the war were horrifying, but they were great TV, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I do think that the Ukrainians are suffering a little bit from from the fact that things aren't moving very quickly anymore. And that, you know, raises attention span issues, particularly when, you know, we have lots of reason to fight with one another and hate each other domestically. And, you know, and so there's a there's a serious set of attention span issues. And I think that's the bigger threat than anything that Amazon can do. How's it going? I don't know. You know, I I don't I, I don't flatter myself that, you know, shining lights on an embassy um, in uh, in is is going to do more than remind a few people, hey, this is still happening. And um, but I do think it's important to remind a few people, hey, this is still happening. I also think it's important to remind people in Ukraine that we haven't forgotten about them. And, you know, there's a, uh, just as there's a Ukraine fatigue in Washington, there is really a, oh my God, the world has forgotten us uh, thing going on in Ukraine and among Ukrainian exiles all over uh Eastern and Western Europe. Uh, And I I just, I do think there's a, you know, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable kind of uh, value to it. But is it, does it do anything important in the, in the broad scheme of thing? I'm sure not. Well, let's not be selling ourselves you know, short here. The next thing you'll be telling us that this podcast is uh, a waste of electrons, but um but surely, surely, when you you know this last screening must have been a uh, you know a, a big hit, if, just not to be trivial about it, uh, that pulls people back. I I certainly hope so. I mean, I I've I've spent rather a lot of time and no small amount of money doing these things and i do them because i i i think it is important to send this message i i just don't want to overstate the value of it and I, and the ultimate consequences of it i i the other value of it from my point of view is that is the reaction that it provokes i i do think you know we planted hundreds of sunflowers 
and somebody from the embassy or somebody sympathetic to the embassy destroyed them all. We did it again. They did it again. Um, and I do think, you know, producing video of an irate embassy staffer kicking sunflowers that little girls have laid in front of the embassy, uh, uh, that tells a story about who the adversary is. And it tells a story that's a little bit different from a bombed building in Mariupol. It's because it's the story of who they are here. And, you know, uh, Yulia said earlier that she has to drive by that embassy every day. I do think the people who have to actually live in the neighborhood with the, that building and the people who uh, who work in it, uh, that's upsetting. And to see them reveal themselves as who they really are, which is representatives of a murderous criminal regime, uh, there's some value to doing that and to publicizing that. Is it going to change the fate of Ukraine? Probably not. Is it going to, will it maybe buck up the spine of one member of Congress uh, when the next time they have to vote for $40 billion and there's pressure from constituencies not to do it? I hope so. You are uh, certainly in the uh, glass uh, half full camp. Like, you know, given everything that's happening in America, um, given the sort of static nature of the war, I mean, the real puzzle is why there isn't even more Ukraine fatigue either in America or, or, or in, other, in other Western capitals. And certainly the Ukrainians' own ability to tell their story in a very compelling way is, is a big part of the answer. A few weeks ago, you know, there was this photo shoot of, 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 of Olena Zelenska in, 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 in the Vogue, made, again, like a massive splash across the Western world, created a little bit of controversy, but it was a you know way of keeping Western audiences engaged and involved and interested. And, 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 and it made the right enemies. <laughs> and, and I mean, the Ukrainians are really, they have been from the very beginning, very, very, very good at this. Like they clearly have thought about, you know, this moment coming and, uh, and it, is helping them, I presume, a a, 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 a a great deal. But I mean, I wonder uh, what else you have planned for the for the for the coming months. If you know, if 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 it becomes more and more difficult to to keep the focus on Ukraine, uh, will there be more screenings? Will there be you know more flag projections on on the Russian embassy? Or is, is, there, is, there, is, there, is there anything sort of new and exciting you've got in store for us? The sunflower thing was, was really powerful. I mean, the, particularly because of how, how it's been framed. You know, the, the little girls, sunflowers versus the sort of brutality and, and, and sort of destructiveness of, 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 of the Russian goons. I, th- I think that's, that's the sort of story that, that does resonate beyond just the immediate vicinity of the of the embassy. So, so, so what, what else have you got in store for us? Well, so a few things. First of all, uh, about the little girls and the sunflowers. Um, you know, 
these actions are very improvisational. Uh, you set up, I didn't know that the story on Saturday night was going to be a white van parked in front of my projector, uh, or, I mean, I sort of expected the building to be lit up with Zs, but I, I didn't expect the rest. And so part of the, the goal is you set up a provocation and it's got to be something that provokes them, but doesn't provoke the Secret Service. Um, because the Secret Service are uh, the only thing really that protects you from them. And I also don't want to put our diplomats stationed abroad in situations where they can be retaliated against with, you know, citing what we do as, as some kind of precedent. And so you set up a you set up a situation that's designed to be provocative, and then you improvise around the response. So first we did the Ukrainian flag, and then we didn't know what they were gonna do in response, but they tried to wash it out with a spotlight, which gave rise to the little cat and mouse video where they chased the Ukrainian flag around the surface of the building. And then we did the sunflowers, which we didn't know they were going to come destroy them, but uh, you know, then you replant them and you lay them out in a provocative fashion, and then they respond and you build the 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 viral moment around the response. Um, what do we have in store? Well, a pro Ukrainian projection artist in Odessa made me a lovely video, um, which I. Um, I do expect to use in the next few days. Um, I'm not going to say where because uh, I don't really want to uh, reveal your tactics. The, I don't really want to give them more information than I have to. But uh, it's it's charming. Uh, it's actually a, a, a few videos. One of which is very funny. One of which is heartbreaking, and uh, one of which is. Uh, 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 just very earnest and amusing and lovely. And so I will, um, I, I'm going to try to find an arrangement in which to get those up in an uninterrupted fashion that is, you know, using the element of surprise. Um, I also uh, have been asked a number of times by uh, Ukrainian Canadians uh, to do something in Ottawa, uh, which I, I think we should do. Um, uh, I'm not sure what Canadian law is on the subject, um, but I uh, figure a crash course in Canadian projection nuisance <laughs> law can't take that long. There can't there can't be that many people who've who've done this in Canada, um, and then. Um, I, I really want to, one of the other projects I've been doing the past few months has been a, a kind of live podcast that I do on Twitter spaces with Ukrainians, uh, which has made me very interested in the project of amplifying Ukrainian voices about the conflict. And so the model that we were trying to do on Friday, which is to project what amounts to a Zoom Q&A onto a building. 
Um, I would love to get Ukrainians on these Russian buildings um, and figure out how to how to combine those two streams and have um, and use Russian wall space as a way of uh, amplifying Ukrainian voices about the conflict. That's a it's a hard thing to do because uh, it requires sound that is usable at the local level. We we did it Saturday night, but it's quite expensive and. Um, and so I'm, but I'm interested in, you know, how can you use a Zoom, um, a, a Zoom effect, you know, use Zoom and use uh, these uh, telepresence meeting uh, applications like the one that we're on to bring people from Donbass live to Russian diplomatic facilities, for example. That's very powerful. And I'm wondering if if we can rather abstract some recommendations from you to other people who are thinking about in 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 the United States and, and across Europe to other people who are thinking about how to give Ukrainians more of a voice. So two things quickly to run by you. Um, the first is last week, the most powerful thing I've seen in terms of support for Ukraine was that video of Taiwanese freedom fighters waiting for Nancy Pelosi wearing Ukrainian masks. Um, that to me told me that there's that something like that across on the other side of the world, literally, has really an impact, much like you're doing with visual um, improv, if you'd like. And so based on based on that, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more of a um, recipe of how to go about these things. You basically um, told us a bit earlier from, from what I understood that you want to be, that people who want to do this want to be provocative, but also think about the consequences in order not to put, to create unnecessary risk for themselves or for others. And so, of course, that depends on the country where you are and the laws, like you pointed out, um, in the United States versus Canada and other places. But, but do you have basically takeaways for us and for others that we can be thinking about to do these things as we're going into the fall, into more Ukraine fatigue in the months to come to, to make our own contributions to keep Ukraine on the map and in the news? Yeah, it's such a great question. Um, so there are a few, I guess, learnings that I've developed over the course of doing these, and all of these are very impressionistic. But the first of them is... Uh, experiment. Uh, you know, if you try something and you find yourself standing on a street corner with a sign and nobody, it's not generating attention, then try something else. Um, you know, there's the, we, we live in a, we live in a world where the 
range of possible adaptation is is enormous and we should you know take advantage of it the second thing is that you know technology is your friend there are the things that you can do in person and a few dozen people will see them and then if you figure out how to amplify them on social media or on streaming somehow or by writing about it uh, you can bring that to a much, much greater audience. So the, the example that I like to use of this is the cat and mouse video with the Ukrainian flag. That has been, uh, I, I think there were probably about 100 people who saw it in person while, while it was happening. Just people driving by on Wisconsin Avenue were walking by over the course of the evening. Uh, it's been seen by three and a half million people on Twitter. And, you know, so the value of that action was not the people to the people in the embassy. It was not to people driving by. It was not to the local community. You have to think about how you're going to amplify this and, you know, make a statement worldwide uh, or beyond the immediate thing. The, 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 the second thing is that uh, humor matters. Um, and, um, y you know, uh, shrieking at people that people are dying and that there's a genocide going on and that, that it's terrible, uh, I think actually has a negative effect, which is that people feel powerless and that, you know, oh, people are dying and there's nothing I can do about it. Um, and I think there's actually, if you leaven it with a little bit of humor, um, uh, then there's a, there's a point at which somebody can attach to it. It doesn't feel quite as, and you have to be, of course, careful about how you do it because you don't want to joke about war crimes and genocide. Um, but... I think one of the reasons these actions are effective is that we make fun of the Russians. We don't just scream at them. Uh, there's a kind of um, there's a kind of uh, mocking, you know, totalitarianism, authoritarianism craves to be taken seriously. And if you can deny them that and you can you can make them just seem like like small small insignificant figures this enrages them and this brings me to my last point which is it is often as i said before the reaction you can elucidate elicit from them that is the most powerful thing i can plant a sunflower and you know great i planted a sunflower he destroys a sunflower, and that's a that's a really powerful message. And I even told the little girls before they laid those sunflowers down, you know they're going to get destroyed, right? And one of them just said, oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, so, like, I mean, she, she was, she was, uh, she was very sophisticated about what she was doing. And, um, and so I, I think, you know, thinking through 
what's the what's the reaction you're trying to produce what's the what's the serious element like i want people to watch mr jones i want people to learn a little bit about the holodomor learn a little bit about the information operations around the holodomor but the way you get them to do it is not tweet oh go watch mr jones it's a really great film um you'll learn something right the way you get them to do it is by showing them that the russians don't want them to see to see this film will even park a van in the way of the projector to prevent you from doing it um and show them that they think it's important um and then what if if the russians think it's important that you don't do it you you then have this psychological incentive to do it and also they look ridiculous well um i think we should put a link in the trailer to uh night spends uh cat and mouse videos and other videos from this past weekend but also to mr jones if it's publicly uh, available Ben, as a child of the late 60s growing up in Washington, you're making me uh, have uh, warm and nostalgic uh, memories of what civil disobedience and protest in this country can be like. Uh, and one of the things that I think makes your work so effective is its contrast to the, the violence of so much of what we see these days um, you're quite right that your your gentle touch is sometimes the most lethal uh, approach to things so uh, thank you so much for joining us uh Dalibor, will you pipe us out <laughs> sure from Dalibor Rohaj and Zell Donnelly and Julia Zosa. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. Many thanks to our special guest today, Benjamin Wittes. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, written as one word. Um, I should also say that uh fortnightly newsletter is now live you can sign up through the link uh which will include in the show notes it's part of ai's website and it will provide you with an update of our recent episodes q a with the hosts and you can also stay that way up to date with our most recent op-eds articles studies uh which all pertain to security challenges and and and, and geopolitics of eastern europe um, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.